Again, I hope that you all are doing well. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter, and we will be reading in verse 16 in just a few minutes. Just as an uh, overall purpose of why the Apostle Paul is writing, he is writing this letter to the church in, in Asia Minor to encourage them, to the people of Asia Minor, the Christians, to, to encourage them, to exhort them, particularly in uh, the first book, 1 Peter, they encourages them through suffering, to endure, to look ahead to eternity, to put their hope in, in Christ for eternity, to be faithful now, but to endure suffering, the call of obedience and holiness, submission and good conduct is spoken in 1 Peter. In 2 Peter, the church is called to endure, to reject false teaching and false teachers and for them to remain steadfast in the truth of God's word. So therefore, we saw this overall theme that just kind of flows throughout 2 Peter, and that is to be firm in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's in verse 2, and we see it throughout chapter 1 and in chapter 3. Last week, in verses 12 through 15, we heard the, the words of a man who is about to die. The man who is, who is dying, and that is Peter. And he uh, reminds them to remember, to be established in the gospel. He reminds them over three times to recall the things that they have been taught and to remain established in those gospel truths. We need to be reminded. So we talked about last week. We need to be reminded to remember the gospel and reminded to be established in Christ and in God's word. That is our only foundation. That's the foundation by which we are building our lives. That is the solid rock. You know this old song, Christ the solid rock we stand. It's in him in which we stand. It's in him in which we are building our lives upon. Now this week's passage is also a very important passage. It is a very important passage because it has massive implications to theology and to doctrine, but yet it also reveals to us very practically as a church where our source of authority comes from, especially in contrasting to false teachers. So look at verse 16 as we look to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was bore to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in dark place in a dark place until the day dawns 
and the morning star arises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. What a wonderful text, yet also at the same time can be somewhat confusing. There's a couple of things you might have noticed in, in our first reading of this, and maybe it's the first time you've read this, or a long time you've read this. First, Peter is claiming that what he is teaching to them, what he has brought to them previously, is that this isn't fake news. This isn't disinformation. This isn't fairy tales. This isn't fables. This isn't tall tales or disinformation. It's true. It's true because he's solid. It's something he personally experienced as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Second, Peter illustrates the point that he brought up there in verse 16 with a particular event that took place within human history that out of all the people in human history, he, out of a handful, had the privilege to witness during the life of Christ, and that is being described the transfiguration of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels in Matthew 17, Mark chapter 9, and Luke, Luke chapter 9. Third, right in the middle of the passage, verse 19, there is a, a direct command, a direct command, a, a warning to you to pay attention, to listen up. When the scriptures say pay attention, all those who have ears to hear and eyes to see should perk up. And listen, pay attention. That's important. Fourth, this is what we are paying attention to, and that is to the prophetic word of God. Here we see Peter highlighting, in a sense, uh, the rules of interpretation of Scripture, as well as the process by which Scripture was inspired, is inspired by the Holy Spirit, how it was transmitted. We sang in our first song this morning, like we do, the last Sunday of each month. Your word alone is solid ground, the mighty rock in which we build. In every line is found truth. In every line, truth is found. In every page is glory filled. This is why. This is why we sing that. This is why we say and we believe that God's word is, is holy and inspired and inerrant without errors. Is what we sing and what we confess something that we just made up? Something that the apostles just made up? Something that the early church fathers just made up and continued its propagation for over 2,000 years? Are we just pressing something into the Bible? isn't there or isn't true. However, what we see is that God's word speaks very clearly about itself and its origin. The context of the sources of authority that Peter brings up are put up against the false teachers. 
the false teachers and their sources that they had. And in particular, when the false teachers were denying the second coming of Christ. Peter, Peter actually tells us in chapter 3, verse 4, that this is what they're saying. They say, uh, they will say, false teachers, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This is, this is what they're saying. Life will just go on. Peter is going to die, and guess what? Still, Jesus hasn't come back. And if there is no second coming, then there is no judgment. And so what they are teaching, if it is true, then everything that, that Peter is teaching, if it's inspired, not inspired by the Holy Spirit, and if what Peter is teaching is not true, then everything that he is actually saying is just optional. You can just do whatever you want. You can pick and choose what you want. Do what you want, when you want, what feels good. Just make sure you tack Jesus in with it and then call yourself a Christian. You see, this is the teaching. You see, this teaching, and we'll absolutely unpack more of this in the coming weeks as we get into chapter 2 and chapter 3, is not only a plague of the first century church, but it's just as rampant as it is today, if not more than ever. Secularism, liberal Christianity, prosperity gospel, false prophets, and false teachers have infested the church. So there are two sources that we see Peter show here. That Peter claims. And these two sources just absolutely blow out of the water the weak sources of false teachers. And Peter identifies them for us, and those will be our two points. Number one, the, the prophetic word, or the prophetic word, or the apostolic witness and the prophetic word, excuse me. So first we see in our passage this morning, what Peter is showing us is the importance of the apostolic witness, meaning the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. We see right there in, in verse 16. Look at look what he says. He says, For we did not follow cleverly myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So our passage opens up this morning with Peter defending himself, defending his teaching against the accusations that, that his teaching of the church is just cleverly devised myths. And he encourages them, as well as with the other apostles, that we're not telling you fairy tales, we're not telling you myths or tall tales, lies, and deceptions. And so that's the context again, right? He's outright addressing already these false teachers. Again, they're teaching that the second coming of Christ isn't real. That's just a fairy tale. A cleverly devised myth. Again, essentially accusing Peter and all the apostles of just lying to the church. And what we will see in chapter 2 is the reason why these false teachers were teaching such denials. Why they were belittling them. Because false teachers, many, advocate lifestyles that are contrary, that are contradictory to biblical morality. They were leading people into sin like the serpent. Did God really say, then do what you want to do? 
So more on that next week. But Peter is denying that he was being clever, that he was being inventing and designing myths of the second coming of Christ. He wasn't inventing a new truth or a new revelation or prophecy out of his own imagination or his creativity to just manipulate people. Rather, what he was doing was he was making known to them the power in the coming, or another way to say it is to read it as the powerful coming of Christ, of Jesus. He isn't looking back at the incarnation, as amazing and as wonderful as that is, as Christmas is in the incarnation, in the virgin birth. But Peter was looking forward to the second coming of Christ when he comes, the parousia. And he comes in power, in dunamis, right? In power, he is coming. And in his teaching and in Peter's teaching and preaching for the church is this powerful coming of Christ. It was not made up, but rather we, the apostles, were eyewitnesses of Christ's majesty. Now, talking about something that someone else had told you is not the same thing as being an eyewitness. Talking about something that you have read in a book or on the internet is not the same as living through something and experiencing it yourself. In the justice system, clear evidence and eyewitness testimony is required in order to prove guilt or innocence of a defendant. I heard someone say, someone told me that they saw it like this, that's conjecture, that's hearsay. And that's not a good witness to an event or to a crime or to give someone an alibi. It would not hold in court, or at least it should not hold up in court. But direct, first-person eyewitness changes everything. And that's what Peter is saying here. We didn't make this stuff up. No matter what these people say, no matter how smart and clever that they may be, or well-dressed well they may be, and how well put together, or money that they bring into the church, it doesn't matter. Where were they when Jesus was here? Yeah, that's what I thought. I, I know where he was. I was with him every day, and I heard and I saw everything. That's what Peter's saying here. And I was one of the few that saw his majesty. Peter was an eyewitness to Jesus' life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. And then he directs us to one major event that he and only the Apostle John and James were witness to, and that is on the Mount of Transfiguration. In verse 17, Peter testifies. He says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice bore from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. The majesty of verse 16 was manifested in the one and only God that was shared by his son, and it was experienced by Peter, James, and John as eyewitnesses. He saw Jesus receive glory in the transformation of his face that was shining, in his clothes that were dazzling as white as the gospel accounts tell us. And they beheld that glory. 
They beheld that glory. They heard the honor that was bestowed upon the Son by the voice of God the Father who was commending His Son that this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The voice of God spoke out what is theologically true, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, loved fully and perfectly by the Father. He who has fulfilled the promises of God has come, and I am pleased with him. He is the servant of the Lord. He is like King David, but he is so much more because he shares in my majesty as the Son of God. To say that God is well pleased with Jesus is an expression of his electing pleasure, his deep and abiding love for him. A side note on that word pleased. Because it's also used by Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verse 32. When he says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God, our heavenly father, delights in bringing us into his kingdom and keeping us in his kingdom and preparing us for his kingdom. In Galatians chapter 1, the apostle Paul speaks how God had set him apart for salvation before he was even born. And then in God's time, by his grace alone, he called him. He called him, and, and Paul says that it pleased God to do so. That God took pleasure in revealing his son to the Apostle Paul. Just as a side note for us, but God is pleased. God takes pleasure in all of his sons and daughters. And why? Why does God take pleasure in all of his sons and daughters? It is because he is pleased with his beloved son, Jesus Christ, and the work that he has accomplished. Not in me, but in all of you. Now the transfiguration, that's a pretty amazing event in history. We call this a theophany in theology, a, like a, a revealing, a physical manifestation in the sense of, of God, and we hear it in his, his voice and in his son. But why would Peter bring up this quintessential illustration as the quintessential illustration to verify the truth of Christ's future coming? Well, here's why. Because first, the honor and glory that Christ has received, right, the, com the, uh, the, the, the commending and the, the glory, the changing of himself and the, and the, and the, the shining, dazzling white clothes and, the, and the, the glowing light from his face as it was shining, this all points forward to the honor and glory that we will see replicated at the second coming of Christ. Because Christ is coming in power. He's coming in power. Peter is telling us that the transfiguration is a precursor to Christ's return and that he was an eyewitness to it. Again, proving the teaching of the second coming of Christ. In the second way, we see it in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Immediately following the transfiguration, there's recorded declarations that God's kingdom is also going to come in power. So this is suggesting to us again that the transfiguration, and this is why he used it, the transfiguration is anticipating how Jesus is going to come back in power and honor and glory. 
and he's an eyewitness to these things. And he's not just dreaming this up. He's not just pushing some false narrative through or some misinformation or disinformation or, or some myth. But rather, he saw Jesus transformed and he heard the voice of God, the Father. So what does all this mean? It means that our faith, our hope, our joy, our Christian lives are not rooted in fairy tales or fiction, but rather in apostolic witness. I can tell you that the same accusers in Peter's, uh, Peter's day of Peter's theology, they still exist today. They say that uh, about the gospel that the God-man who was born of a virgin, who lived the perfect life and performed miracles, who died on the cross, who was resurrected from the dead and will come back still denied, questioned, it's just, uh, they've just questioned it, they've denied it, they mythologized it, they belittled it, they twisted it, they uh, downplayed it. That's just a fairy tale. They'd say it's an opiate for the masses just so that you could get through life, or just to control you. No way am I going to fall for that nonsense. I'm a man of science. I'm a woman of science. Has there ever been one miracle or promise from creation to the Noahic flood, to the parting of the Red Sea, the resurrection, every single miracle and even the return of Christ and every promise in the Bible that has not been attacked or put on someone's chopping block. All of Christianity to the world is considered a myth or a lie. What's pervasive in our culture today is that we're told that faith does not mix with science that Christians are science deniers because science is fact, although it's changing all the time. In fact, you're really not supposed to say science is fact because you're always questioning. You're always putting theories and hypotheses forward to, to keep science and discovery ongoing. Well, I'm not a scientist. And science is the only fact and only truth that you can truly rely on. Of course... That's assuming that Christians, that we really don't believe that, that God is the glorious creator, that he is the author and creator of science, all of science, and, and even all of the laws of nature, and that he has written every one of them, and he's the one that keeps them in their place. That what goes up must come down because of God. Why the oceans stay in their place because of God. And he has told us that these things are good. But no, we, we, we just believe a myth. And Peter categorically denies that the gospel is a myth. And he links it directly to the eyewitness majesty of Christ. Many world religions cannot be traced to the historical facts or even come close to direct eyewitness. But Christianity is not only rooted in historical fact, but it is linked to the eyewitness testimony of those who had complete knowledge of the historical Jesus who lived, died, resurrected into heaven, and to now we wait till he returns. The apostles did not fabricate these stories these things, because 
they saw Jesus. They had been with him. And they had done life with him for three years. And they have such knowledge, they now pass down to us by their first hands of counts to edify the disciples and now the followers of Christ. And that strengthens us. This should strengthen us in our resolve and what we believe to be true as we face falsehood. It gives us uh, discernment as we see false teaching and false teachers. When we see worldliness, it gives us resolve until our Savior returns in power and glory. Brothers and sisters, God in his mercy and in his grace in his providence, and his sovereignty, he has given to us direct first-hand accounts through the apostolic witness. And yet Peter goes on, and he tells us that we have even more a reliable source. So 16 through 18 is the, the eyewitness to those events, right? The passage isn't over because he goes on to show us the, the greater necessity of Christians to rely on God's word. And to rely on God's word and to believe God's word as the greatest source of our authority. Now, I want us again to make sure that we're keeping this passage in context in verses 19 to 21 because it shifts to the, he's shifting to the second argument, right? The second argument for the, for the, the reason why Christ, he is coming back and these things are true and all of these teachings that he has been giving to them are true and that the apostolic interpretation of the prophetic word of the Old Testament says that the Lord will come in salvation, in judgment, in power, and in glory like they have been preaching. So the second source that he talks about here, the, of the, the prophecy and the prophets, he's speaking of the Old Testament. He's speaking of the prophetic word in the Old Testament that says the Lord will come in salvation and judgment. However, as Peter was referring to the Old Testament, God, at the same time, was sovereignly using Peter and other godly men, including other apostles, to pen the New Testament. And we know that is from 2 Peter. You turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Paul is, uh, is uh, referenced. The apostle Paul is referenced, and Peter calls Paul's writings Scripture. Now, through the apostolic witness, what was God doing? God was expanding his revelation so that what verses 16 and 18, that's what it shows us, is that God was giving us his word. So these verses are very important for us as Christians to understand that our greater necessity of the only source of authority for us as Christians is the fully inspired and errant word of God just like the prophets of the Old Testament. You look at verse 19. You see what, what he's, he says there. He gives almost his first rule of interpretation. And he's, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Now this is such an important verse, and I want to show you why, because Peter even though he is the eyewitness to these great miracles and this majesty, right, that he's talked about in the transfiguration. Peter saw the walking of water. Peter walked on the water. 
He heard the voice of God in the transfiguration, the majesty of Christ. He saw the appearance of Elijah and Moses at the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw the cross. He saw the resurrection. And yet he is saying very clearly that the written word of God is a more reliable source than even his own experience and testimony. And this is the first major point that we must grasp. And that is the superiority of the scripture to our own personal experience, to our own knowledge, to our own understanding. Today, the cultural viewpoint, once again, that has just absolutely taken it over, and that is the individual is the most important source of truth. They make their own knowledge up, their own truths, their own identities. You make your own truth up based upon your own experiences and your own feelings and your own desires. And your truth is something that no one can question. Brothers and sisters, in media, in sports, in politics, in everything, we are swimming in that garbage. That worldview is being played out in the most insane ways. And the consequences have been devastating, no matter how much they try to cover them up. They have been devastating, they have been destructive, and they are destroying people's lives, they are destroying families, and they are destroying human flourishing altogether. And yet, however, that same ideology has found its way to prosper within the church through popular teaching and teachers that teach that we should base our understanding of God through our own experiences, through our own thoughts and through our own feelings and our own desires, our own promptings instead of the Bible. And yet, as Peter says, the Bible says, the Word of God says, is that we have a prophetic word that is more fully confirmed than myself or some other teacher who teaches what they want and then just tacks scripture to it. God's word is more fully confirmed than someone who says, I have a word from God for you. Or God has told me to say to you. God's word is more fully confirmed than that. The Bible is the objective, authoritative source that can never be changed. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, those who are building their lives upon that truth, that that is a good thing for us. The goalposts are not moving because the gospel never changes. The standard of righteousness never changes, nor does the efficiency and the sufficiency of Christ's work of redemption. Never changing. But theirs is. Their values, their morals, they're ever changing. You need to be now this much more of a Christian. You need to hear this word of the Lord. You need to hear this prophecy. You need to enact these things. You need to speak in tongues, whatever it is. They're adding to the gospel. Whenever scripture contradicts your personal experience, your feelings, your knowledge, or even your own relationships, you should always trust God's word. No doubt should be in our minds. This is why he says, yeah, 
you better pay attention to this. You better pay attention to this. Because God's word is like a lamp shining in the darkness. We pay attention to the lamp of God's word. Because as David says in the Psalms, it says, it is a light unto our path. God's word is a, a lamp unto our feet. As he says, until the day dawns and the morning star arises. That is Christ. As Christ rises in our hearts. All this imagery that he gives here is to help us understand what God's word does. It illuminates. It puts light in, in dark places. It illuminates Christ. God's word always illuminates Christ. It's not illuminating you, it's illuminating Christ. So that you exalt Christ, not you. It illuminates Christ unto salvation. It illuminates Christ through sanctification. And it will illuminate Christ unto our glorification. When Christ comes in power and glory. Let me illustrate this for you. All week we face an onslaught of work, toil, loss, temptation, pain, decay, discouragement, fear, sin, bad news, crazy headlines. Living in a false world can be difficult. And certainly, as we do know, that there are sweet days, there are good days, there are good weeks, there are joyful celebrations and fellowship with one another. And there are still things that we can even look forward to in this life, and to that we are thankful to the Lord. Yet, however, as Christians, what changes our perspective after every week of facing living in a fallen world and a fallen nature and fallen flesh? As Christians, what changes our perspective, what changes our thoughts, what changes our feelings, what changes our knowledge, and what gives us joy and what gives us hope, and that is God's Word. It's God's Word when you read it every, each day. It's God's Word when you hide it in your heart. It's God's Word that is read. It is God's Word that is sang. It is God's Word that is preached in church because with it, it is a lamp that brightens up our path a little bit more, brighter and brighter in our eyes and in our hearts, and it keeps us going and longing for the day for the dawn of the morning star of Christ to arise. That's what we're doing this morning. That's what we're experiencing and seeing this morning as, as God's people and around God's word. He's lighting our way. He's lighting your way. For those who have eyes and ears and your hearts that are hearing this, is, is that it's lighting our way. That our trailblazing pioneer, Christ who has gone before us, is leading us by his word. Second major point from this passage that we must grasp is that the scripture is superior because of its origin, its supernatural origin. The counsel of verse 19 is pay attention to the word of God because it's God's word that is shining light in the darkened hearts, right? And he gives us some rationale behind that. He tells us why. Why do we need to know the Bible? Why do we need to know the scripture? Why is it a reliable source, the reliable source for us? And again, here's the big rub. Is this really God's word? That's the question. Is it really God's word? Or is it just a good word? 
Is it God's word or is it just a good word? Is it just helpful, educational? Yeah, it's, it's worthy to be taught and put on our bookshelves and everybody should have one. Jesus is a, is a good guy and he has some, some great moral teachings that we should, we should follow. And yeah, we should be trying to implement these things in our life. And, but that, this is the rub. The rub is, is God's word, the Bible, really God's word? Is it really divinely inspired? Well, the question's answered right there in verse 20. The rationale, why we follow, why it is a light onto our path. Knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's interpretation. That is wonderful news. That means not another moron like me is making stuff up that I'm following. No, I'm following God's Word. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Amen. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This means that God's word, this means that God's word, the Bible, is fully, completely inspired by God. And as Peter defined inspiration, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Human beings spoke. They spoke with their voice. And they wrote their words, and they wrote those words with their personalities and with their skills and with their style. Inspiration does not mean that the Holy Spirit took over the, the writer like David in a trance, and by the Holy Spirit his hand was moved to write the Psalms in some mysterical, mystical, mythological kind of way. Neither did God's word just fall from the sky, later to be discovered by some dude in the 1800s in upstate New York. No. Men wrote and spoke because they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? It means that the prophets of God in the past, they did not observe events or history and give their own interpretation of how they should understand what they have experienced. They only wrote what came to them by the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what that means for us is that we do not listen to anyone who tries to make Scripture whatever they want it to say. Because they're not only trying to change the meaning of the text, but they are also canceling out the authority of the Scripture. If a prophet did give their own interpretation and the apostles and the writers of the New Testament did not give their own interpretation, then certainly we must be wise and discerning on anyone who comes up with their own interpretation of Scripture outside of Scripture. Second, what we understand here is that understanding prophecy never came to the prophets primarily because it was their own decision. It was their own intention or their own idea or by their own initiative. The prophets didn't have their own personal dreams that they would later add to their own interpretation. Humans are not the primary authors of the scriptures of the word of God, but God is. The Bible is a direct result of the divine will of God. And that is why we listen to God's word, because it is God who spoke it. It is God who wrote it, and therefore no one could change it or add to it. And third, when these men spoke, they did not do so independently, but rather 
by inspiration, by being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And with such authority, that is, it seemed as if God himself was the one who was speaking. I like what Augustine says about the Bible. He says, when the Bible speaks, God spoke. God's word is superior because it was inspired by God himself. He has spoken to us, and this is the voice that we hear. We do not look for signs of lie in life. We don't look for writings in the sky. We don't look for premonitions. We don't even look for the voice of men or women to tell us what God has said, but we look to God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, I want to close with this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. God's word says at the hand of the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, to which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's Paul's experience. As an apostle, that's what he's an eyewitness to and how he has preached the gospel and how he was an example to Timothy, how he has faced persecution from other people, from evil people. However, he goes on to say, verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. What did he learn? He learned the scripture. He learned the truth, the Bible. Have you firmly and have firmly believed faith, knowing, right? Here's the knowledge of God, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scripture which you are able to make wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Brothers and sisters, church, friends, this is why we saturate ourselves with God's word. This is why we saturate ourselves as a congregation when we gather on Sunday mornings with God's word. If there's one thing that you gain from the gathering with Sovereign Grace Church is that we are a church who truly, firmly believe that the Bible is God's word. We read it from the very beginning to the very end. We sing it. We put it in every one of our songs. We prioritize biblical prayer. We preach God's word expositionally, where the point of the text is the purpose of the sermon. And we obey it in practice like we will this morning in the ordinances. And why do we do that? Because it is the inspired word of God. And it is a light, a lamp that is shining in the dark place 
until the day dawns. And as the church, we wait for the morning star to arise in our hearts. And all God's people say...